Welcome to episode 311 with my guest, Dr. Stephen Danziger. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by the hilarious world of depression with host John Moe. Here are some of the funniest comedians like Maria Bamford, Paul F. Tompkins, and Dick Cavett talk about living with clinical depression. It's a chance to have a laugh, hear some real stories, and listen to honest conversation about a disease that should get more talk. Subscribe to the hilarious world of depression wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Paul Gilmartin, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, and I have the flu. Uh, a place for, excuse me, <coughs> honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This is going to be challenging. Um, <clears throat> the show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there. Check it out. I'm still uh, accepting frequent flyer miles if any of you care to donate them, especially important before year's end um, because they um, cap how many you can receive at the end of any given year. So um, if you're going to donate, donate any, that would be great. I have a, um, on my, under my blog, I have a link uh, for how, how to do that, the blog on our website. Anyway, <clears throat> I feel like I'm promoting too many things. I hope you survived uh, Christmas and uh, Hanukkah, or as uh, the late comedian uh, Dennis Wolfberg used to call it, uh, Chaka Khan. Um is actually, I think Hanukkah is probably still going on right now. Anyway, um, anyway, as I dismiss thousands of years of uh, tradition, whatever. This is a uh, email I got from Sarah, and she writes. Um, Recently, my ultimate all-time best friend of forever started her recovery from alcohol and other drugs she had dropped off the grid for a while and to do the, to do this and we just recently reconnected again i expressed to her how proud and happy i was for her and that i admired her hard work and that of course i loved her it tore me up to see uh to see my all the best parts of my friends oh it teared me up to see all the best parts of my friends starting to come back front and center. Something I didn't think, I don't think most people working through their addictions realize is what joy their work and recovery bring to those who love them. The change is dramatic and awe-inspiring. Their eyes become clearer and the best parts of their souls shine through them. Their skin, hair, and, and appearance glow um, improve as a glow of health begins to take hold. I'm sorry, I'm stumbling all over this. My head is congested and continuing. All the favorite parts of their personality, their heart, and their minds reveal themselves again more consistently and beautifully. I know this isn't to say that recovery from addiction is easy, fast, or without backsteps, but I hope this outside perspective can provide some insight and encouragement to those battling their way through. Their work is courageous and inspiring. Those of us who love them on the other side are rooting with all our hearts for them. We are overjoyed and want to thank you for giving us the gift of getting the best parts of you back into our lives. Thank you for that, Sarah. That was really, really touching and really eloquently eloquently put. <clears throat> hey, let's give some love to our sponsor, Texture. It's a new app 
that allows you to get access to all your favorite magazines in one place on your tablet or smartphone. It's awesome, especially if you're traveling. You know, I oftentimes my mood will change and what I decide to read, uh, you know, changes on a dime. And the cool thing about having texture is I can read no matter what mood I'm in. I have a magazine or articles loaded on my tablet that I can jump to. Uh, it's, it's actually, it is a perfect app for people with ADD as, uh, as well. Um, they have an amazing list of titles, over 200 plus magazines, all of my favorite ones. And, uh, you know, Texture has gone beyond delivering just the magazine. You know, they make it easy to find uh, and read articles uh, that you want to uh, with daily recommendations, exclusive interactive features, uh, videos, and a whole lot more. It's really cool, like watching, uh, uh, reading an article about, you know, some person, and then all of a sudden there's a video you can click on and you can see the very thing that they're that they're talking about. It's searchable. You can mark what you like, check out back issues, um, view bonus video content, and they even curate articles and magazines just for you or whoever you're giving texture to. So why on earth would you subscribe to a couple of magazines when you could have all the best ones on your smartphone or tablet all the time for way less? So right now, texturing, Texture is offering you guys a 14-day free trial when you go to texture.com slash mental. That's 14 days to try Texture for free when you go to texture.com slash mental. Let's try that one more time. Oh, I kind of like my flu voice. Texture.com slash mental. I am going to read a couple of um, struggle in a sentence surveys before we get to the interview with uh, Dr. Stephen Danziger. <clears throat> I think uh, mean DJ voice is a little, a little jealous of Paul's flu voice. This is, uh, I think I could be on AM radio. Oh, yeah. Top of the hour. Coming at you. October rock block. He He's pouting in the corner right now. Mean DJ voice. Um, this is filled out by Anxious as Anxiety. And she writes, um, she writes a haiku about her anxiety. My anxiety. What am I even doing? Oh, anxiety. <laughs> Thank you for that. I would like to see more uh, struggle in a sentence haikus. So get on that. Get on that. Make that your New Year's resolution. Nope. Uh, shares about uh, experiencing dissociation. Like someone is showing me a series of photographs of what my life could be like, but it all seems fake, as if they're showing me someone else's story. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And then she, any comments? I'd love to hear from people who've been adopted or in foster care. Uh, two episodes that would be great uh, to check out uh, are the episodes with uh, the episode with Julie J. and the episode with Tiffany Haddish. Um, Julie was adopted, and Tiffany um, was in the foster care system. This is filled out by Citrus Smiles, and uh, she shares a, a snapshot of uh, living with self-harm issues. I cut myself to make my skin look like a barcode to a product no one will want to purchase. Wow, that is deep. Man, 
It's amazing how, thank you for sharing that, by the way. It's amazing how, um, how good people are at expressing that, that pain or that struggle. And I often think it's because we spend so much time in our heads wishing we weren't this way. So we get to look at it from every possible angle. Ryan shares about his anxiety. Having anxiety is like chasing yourself with a chainsaw through the foggy moonlit woods. It's great. Snapshot from his life. People constantly ask why I have depression and anxiety because I have so many good things going for me. And then he puts sigh. Um, you know, when somebody says that to you, say, um, that's like asking you know, somebody, how could you have cancer? You're so rich. Laura J. Um, shares about being a sex crime victim. Um, oh, actually, first, first she uh, she's battling postpartum depression, and I just wanted to recommend a couple of episodes for for her to listen to. Um, the episode with Teresa Strasser, um, episode with Doctor Zucker. Um, actually, all three, but I think start with the first one, and then. Um, do the other two. And then the episode with Andrea Schaefer. And I know there's more. You can always um, search PPD on our website. And her snapshot about being a sex crime victim, uh, being date raped in your own home with your parents only steps away and too afraid to call out because I don't want to disappoint them. Wow. Wow. That is so profound and heavy. The the lengths that a kid will go to to avoid having any kind of emotional interaction with the parent I think when the history probably has been with that parent of emotional invalidation, I'm just going to take a wild guess that that's, that's why she didn't say anything. Mm. Sending you some love. And then finally, <clears throat> um, this one is about codependency. It's filled out by some girl, and she writes, uh, I'm ashamed of hate. I'm ashamed of hate and in love with the same man that gets me out of bed every morning and makes me want to die every day. And then a snapshot of her codependency. I've spent the last year and a half trying to, quote, be good enough for the addict I'm in a, I'm in a relationship with. During this short relationship, this man has lied to me more times than I can count, stolen prescription medication and money from me, totaled my car while driving drunk, gotten me kicked out of my apartment, brought drugs into my home, invited prostitutes to my home while I was working, lost his job, and refused to file for unemployment or get another job, been arrested twice, and on top of everything else, all but refuses to have sex with me more than once every month or two months. While working a 55-hour week and maintaining our household on my own, I've been trying to figure out how I'm letting him down. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. 
So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness. Is convincing myself. I'm so alone. Why. Hypervigilant. I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. Then you just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. I'm here with Dr. Stephen Danziger who uh, is a psychologist. He does EMDR. He's a sober guy. He practices Buddhism. Am I mm-hmm. correct uh, on that? You used to be a drummer in a punk band. What was the name of the punk band? Well, there are several because I was a drummer and everyone needs a drummer. But uh, <laughs> it started with the Responsible Teenagers, went on to uh, King Missile, uh, Pianosaurus, all kinds of uh, nonsense. Late 70s, early 80s, New York City, CBGB's, Max's, Kansas City. Oh, boy, yeah. I bet you have some stories. Yeah, there's a story or two. Well, let's start off with one <laughs> before we get to the healthy shit. Well, you know, actually, uh, recently I was reminded of one of the stories that I didn't really remember, but um, it was that I have had exactly two fist fights in my life. Both of them were with bandmates in front of CBGBs. And I was instructed by my friend who reminded me of these stories that I should take great pride in this but there were those kind of fist fights that had very little fists involved like we're pulling like we didn't want to hit each other we loved each other but we were pretty drunk and we were having a fist fight and um anyway so how did the cockroaches and rats react oh they were uh they were just waiting for the next band really (laughs) yeah they were they were yeah they were music fans um yeah i spent a lot of time there I, i i often say that i went to high school there um, you I must st- have been so young. How old are you? I was like, I'm 53 now. Okay. And I was 16 when I played my first gig at CB's. And it was... Uh, you from, from New York? From New York. Uh, the city? Born in Brooklyn, raised on Long Island on the South Shore. And um, our guitarist dad, who was kind of an old uh, hippie, uh, used to drive us in, in his VW bus to our gigs. And it was three 16-year-old nice Jewish boys. And, um, like the Beastie Boys of punk. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we were Beastie Boys at that time, too, were actually, they were a hardcore band. And, uh, I eventually ended up in a band called You Suck. We were the worst band in the world. We were, I, I was, uh, hanging out drinking in the hallway of, uh, my friend John Hall, who's the lead singer of King Missile. Um, we were thinking of as many band names as we could. And the two top band names were, uh, Look at All Those Dogs. <laughs> And you suck. And look at all those dogs. The concept was the only purpose of the band was to see how many dogs you could keep herded onto the stage at CBGB's. And you suck was the worst band in the world. And people would chant our name, and that would be that. And we had a uh, we had a theme song uh, called "Get the Fuck Off the Stage," which we did by request. Anyway, um, we combined the two ideas. So instead of herding dogs, we decided to see how many people we could get on stage. So this band, You Suck, had 
anywhere between 20 and 30 people on stage. One guy was solving a Rubik's cube. <laughs> Another person was there. Were, we had a couple of jugglers. Uh, we had someone filing her nails in, into a microphone, um, not in rhythm. Uh, yeah. We had a guy fishing for a dead bass off of the side of the stage, and he, every now and then he'd pull it up and say, hey, I got one. Um, and guitar-based drums, you know, <laughs> and then random instruments, whoever was in town at the time. And anyway, that band actually opened for the Beastie Boys at Great Gildersleeves when they were still a hardcore band. So, Oh, my God. So, yeah, it was just all, all those people. Like, John, John, I believe, went to Stuyvesant with one or two of the Beastie Boys. And so it was this whole scene of uh, the sort of the, the teenage version of that scene, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. So I was just a kid. Did you get to see some great music there? So, yeah, I saw, you know, name any of those people, and I pretty Talking much Heads, Blondie, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ramon. I was just listening to the Ramones on the way here. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of, I saw a lot of Ramones shows. Um, instead of going to my high school prom, I went to see Richard Hell and the Voidoids at CB's. That was with Is that before television? Uh, that was... Um, no, I think that's after he's in television. So television is still in existence, but without him. And know? don't many people consider television to really be what spawned the British punk movement? That they were just kind of copying that, and then we copied their version uh, of that? Or is that... Yeah, there's a, you, there's a whole, you know, East Coast, West Coast, but over the pond kind of battle as yeah. to who invented what. Um, Richard Hell is is credited with uh, the or credits himself or is credited with the safety pins and the, the mm -hmm. fashion aspect of it, and then that makes its way over to Britain. And then also the, when the Ramones went over there, mm -hmm. I think uh, they were just sort of they were you know, they had their RCA Victor Dog look, and they were like, hey, we should form bands like that. Um, that's the uh, American centric version of the story. I see. Um, but television, you know, they they they're just like a whole other animal. Um, those guitar solos. I, I remember seeing Richard Lloyd play, uh, and I was wondering how his pinky could be over there while his, you know, forefinger was over there, like it was detached. And those just a ridiculous solos that he played. But yeah, love that band. Uh, what was it like seeing the Talking Heads for the first time? Um, the, uh, so the had two, they found, had they found their voice yet? Yes, they, they found their, you know, the first version of the voice. Cause so, so I saw them only once as a four piece, uh, just in that first two albums kind of format before I saw them is with the expanded unit that's in the, the movie Stop Making Sense. I see. And so. Was it just Tina and uh, Tina Chris? and Chris and Jerry and Dave? Okay. David. Yeah. Um, David actually used to stalk the lead singer of the band I was in. Not like stock, but, you know, stock. Showed up to a lot of shows. I see. Um, so, yeah, so it was just the, the, the that original version of the band. And I have very dim memories of, of that, but I have very vivid memories of when I saw that tour, the Stop Making Sense tour, because mm -hmm. I was in the front row. I was at Emerald City in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I was like in the third row, and just my mouth was dropped open. And I, I, it's one of those concerts that I had that reaction, like, are you are people allowed to do that? Like, that's just too good. His, his flair for the theatrical mm -hmm. is just incredible. Yeah. Incredible. And his, just his, uh, and his, uh, just how excited he is mm -hmm. to do everything he does. You know, he just really loves being him and I appreciate it too. Yeah. And Chris and Tina, like they were always, to me, they were always a solid, solid rhythm section. Really solid. More and more solid. Yeah. I mean, they could do disco uh, mm -hmm. if they wanted to, yeah. they could 
lay back and mm-hmm. do other things. But yeah, some of their songs that are uh, club music is just insanely mm-hmm. tight and uh, funky. I just saw a, a video, uh, a YouTube video of them recently, like a couple of years ago on the rooftop of some museum in Europe somewhere in the Tom Tom Club version. Yeah. And they were just outrageous. Yeah. I had a big crush on her. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us did. Yeah. Um, so you were probably deep in your addiction then, even at 16? What, what, were, what were your uh, drugs and drinks of choice? So it started... Sober for 27 years? 27 years, yeah. yeah. Uh, 1989 is when I got sober. And um, it started with uh, marijuana and alcohol. I was uh, introduced at 12 years old at summer camp to uh, Genesee Cream Ale, Southern Comfort, and weed. And I had uh, one of those first impact experiences. Um, actually, I'd been introduced a little bit earlier. I, I, w- I had skipped a grade, and I was mm-hmm. also young for my class. So I was hitting the bar mitzvah circuit when I was 12. So I'd had some introduction to alcohol, and it hadn't really made that much of an impact for whatever reason. I just didn't notice it. But that first night at the summer camp with the weed and the alcohol, uh, went into a gray out, went into a blackout. Um, puked, woke up with the crusty puke on my lips, um, hangover that was worse than any migraine I had had. And I was a migraine sufferer as a kid. And, uh, I now know that I was an addict because I, I, I woke up and said, do you have any more of that? And what time are we starting tonight? (laughs) And part of that is because like before the chaos, I was like, much taller than I still am. And I was much funnier and much sexier and all those things. That's amazing how bulletproof you feel. uh, It was, it was, I, I, you know, and then I effectively chased that for the next, you know, whatever that is, 14 years. Um, I did have a little bit of a stopgap in that my dad, uh, was six foot two in every direction and generally angry. And so I did not bring this habit home with me. I, 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 uh, did the rest of the summer. And then I kept on asking to go back to that camp Mm. uh, successfully. Uh, I went for another three summers and I kind of kept a lid on it at home until I, uh, in my junior year of high school, I had a friend who, you know, he had a a dad who was not, who didn't care if we drank and he had a basement for us to go do it. Yes. Nirvana. Just Nirvana when you're a teenager. Yes. Basement. It was always the Italian dads in my uh, neighborhood. They were they, they they got the motorcycles. They got uh, to drink. They got all the all the good shit. All the good shit. Yeah, yeah. I was I was in a, uh, a Italian and Irish neighborhood. Yeah. Um, my parents uh, wanted to move to a Jewish neighborhood. They missed by about eight blocks, and so um, I had my choice of you know Italian or Irish um, alcohol <laughs> and, and fun and games, but. Um, yeah, so that that once that once the Nirvana was found, um, I just kept coming back. And then one of my friends, uh, we were both on the school newspaper, the Golden Wave, and <laughs> um, he's like, "Do you want to come to my house and uh, you, you want to play punk rock?" I was like, "That sounds really good." And you know, I guess I'm 14 at the time, and uh, so it's 1977. I mean, that's. The year, that's really. It. That's when it's happening. How does this kid know about it? He, I guess he was just a little ahead of the curve. He was a little older than me, and he had just done his uh, due diligence. He's, he, you he know, he's been hanging out in record shops. 
he was he did something. everything that I needed to be done for me about six months or a year ahead. Yeah, and he just said, "Come on over." I've written some songs, and he had written the uh, great hits at that time, "Brain Damage." which goes as follows brain damage. It's tearing me apart. Brain damage. My brain is going to fart brain damage. I'm going to, gonna, I'm going to, I'm going to yell brain damage. I'm going to go to hell, but I love it. I love it. <laughs> anyway. So uh, there was that in genocide cupcakes, which was, uh, I think that was the one that was about Jim Jones. Cause that was yeah. current, current events way down South on the Amazon. The people's temple cult was getting it on <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, and anyway, so we started to play that, and that, that was sort of a, also an excuse to drink, you know, something to do while we're drinking. And then we decided to play our high school Battle of the Bands. Now, this is uh, late 70s, Long Island. Um, all the f- kids were listening to is Leonard Skinnerd. I, I never understood it. You know, it was all Southern rock uh, and Zappa. <laughs> Those were the two things <laughs> that people were really doing, Leonard Skinnerd and Zappa. And so we played the high school Battle of the Bands, and... Um, uh, there were six bands. We were the sixth band. I think either two or three of the bands all played Freebird, and the audience went berserk each time. Oh, my God. And no one else was playing original music, because that's not what you did back then. I'm getting a knot in my stomach. It's just anticipating it? you coming on. So we, so we surrounded ourselves. It was in the school cafeteria, right? We surrounded ourselves with the garbage cans, and, and the, the lead singer was uh, Stephen Tunney, who's also known as Dog Bowl, who later was in King Missile and has his own career and has written novels, and he's a fantastic mm-hmm. artist, and you know, this is my high school buddy. And so he put all uh, this artwork on the garbage cans and you could just around the time the fifth band was playing, everybody was just starting to come on over to our side. They were like, yeah, this is going to be something. We don't know what it is. And so we just launched into brain damage and people were just, uh, very happy, um, to start throwing shit at us. (laughs) And, uh, does that mean they didn't enjoy you or it was just, that's the whole thing, right? Like how does punk rock work? So, um, they, I think they were, they didn't like it. None of us were popular kids. Um, and I think they were uh, confused. Um, and then I think they thought that what you do at a show like this is you throw shit. And so all the garbage cans got knocked over and they were just throwing every bit of garbage. When they ran out of garbage, they started unscrewing light bulbs from the ceiling and throwing those at us. I had a, uh, an empty bottle of something like hit the bass drum. That's when I got scared. I was like, yeah. I mean, in fact, I was kind of like a little kid and this oh thing hit God. me. I was like, oh, I'm a little scared. Um, but uh, Steve had done his punk rock research and we got thrown off the stage after two songs um, in a hail of garbage and our <laughs> punk rock research showed that the very first sex pistol show they got thrown off the stage in a hail of garbage after two songs so we were like <laughs> so two of the members of the band um, were like that well that was weird and scary and fun and I'll remember that always and me and Steve just looked at each other we're gonna do this for the rest of our lives <laughs> so then that's kind of how it went and um uh, you know, it had that Long Island tinge to it of being the unpopular kids. We, uh, we had, uh, we called ourselves the flies and we put it on like in masking tape on the van that we <laughs> drove there. When we came back out, it said the fags, you know, it was like that kind of lifestyle in yeah. Long Island. And, um, but we were undeterred. And what happened was, is that, uh, the fifth band was, uh, two people from our high school and two ringers from out of town. And those two ringers from out of town asked me, you know, if I want to play drums. And I was already, you know, here I am, I'm 15 years old or something, and I'm already a mercenary, you know, like all, like all drummers. Uh-huh. I'm like, sure, I'll play with you. And um, 
that was the band that started to play all those gigs at uh, CB's. Um, what happened was the brother um, of the uh, guitarist was a huge fan of the Uncle Floyd show. And Uncle Floyd had the pictures on the wall thing, and Paul always had pictures on the wall. And so, what's the Uncle Floyd oh, thing? Uncle Floyd was a uh, before there was cable, sort of like a public access, public access, mm -hmm. and uh, sort of between public access and cable. And uh, Floyd Vivino was a comedian uh, in a pork pie hat. He was kind of like uh, uh, Ernie Kovacs for children. I mean, okay. he, and and what happened was he just started having like the Ramones were on, like I think the Clash was on. Like he just started having all the punk rock bands on the show. As a matter of fact, there's a, a David Bowie song. I'm not, I can't I can't hum a few bars for you, but there's a David Bowie song about his love of Uncle Floyd and like how much time he spent just like smoking weed and watching Uncle Floyd. Wow. Yeah, he'd had this whole bit with a Betty Crocker oven, and he'd do like this Julia Ch fake Julia Child show. I mean, it was yeah. real awesome lowbrow stuff. And so these bands were going on, and so we we made a tape, you know, a cassette, and we sent it to Uncle Floyd and said, you know, this is Paul's brother. And he put us on like, and, and Vince Gelsa, the DJ was there that, that day. And I think we were on the same week as the Ramones. And, you know, so my whole thing, the, the sort of alcoholism thing, I, you know, we, I thought we were like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, you know, like we we're like three kids or four kids at the time. How uh, odd for an alcoholic to have grandiosity. Yeah, that never happened. Never happened to me. That was just actually a lie I told. But yeah, I mean, the grandiosity did kick in a little bit there, but it was, it was amazing. And, and the fact was, is we were kind of like, almost like folk rockers in a sense. We did a searchers song. But I was so nervous, I just counted it off, like, one, two, three, four. <laughs> like, I mean, we were almost come, became a punk band out of nerves. And um, then shortly after, we sent an audition tape to CBs, and we got a gig. And then the way that got even more so was, uh, you know, like I said, I went to college when I was 16. I went to University of Pennsylvania. The rest of the band was still in high school. And we'd commute back and forth to rehearse. Like they'd come to Philly and hang out and I'd go back to New York. And then we started playing the hot club, which is a, a the spot in Philly for, for punk bands. And like, I saw madness there. I saw the cure when their first album was out. Like it was pretty, pretty great spot. Wow. And, um, anyway, so the owner of that place, uh, took us under his wing and became our quote unquote manager. And what he was doing was he was getting us better gigs at CB's and Max's than we would get as a New York band. Like he's like, I'll give you my Philly band if, and I'll put your band into my club. So we we're getting Saturday night gigs at CB's and Max's. And it was a little bit past like the, the peak point, but it was like 79, 80, you know, 81, which, wow, you know, and, and I really, Despite the fact that my addiction had started, I still had a heavy dose of like innocence or just sort of like not knowing exactly what it was that was happening. And the band broke up before it could go, you know, super far. The bass player, um, so there was me and then the guitarist was not an addict and has lived a wonderful normal life. We just saw each other for the first time in, in a long time at an event that I was at. Um, but the bass player passed away He as a John Doe. I used to see him. He mm. he ended up, he was from Riverdale in the Bronx, and he developed a heroin habit really quickly. Uh, maybe when he was 18 or 19, he got like a little bit of money and discovered heroin and went for it. So he was like in his early 30s, I guess, when he passed. Mm. And before he passed, I would see him 
like he was the guy in the street on a blanket with a cat on a leash wearing some weird hat asking for money and the one conversation that always stuck with me was one time i saw him and i was just like larry we can get you help we can get you help he's like i did that and i was like come on okay let's so let's do it again three hots in a cot right he's like i don't want to do that i like heroin that was that like i think that was one of the last conversations you can't reason with that no i mean you know you like it you like it's working Yeah. yeah yeah um so what was uh, emotionally, what was your, uh, life like as a, as a kid mm. growing up? What was the, uh, emotional temperature of your, of your house? I'm trying to remember where the switch flipped because the switch flipped before the big switch flipping. The big switch flipping was when I was about 13 and my cousin was killed by a drunk driver. And that guy was my, and we have the same name. He's Steven with a V, Danziger. Mm. And that leveled me. And it leveled me in a way, like think of a category and, that can be switched by that, and it got switched. Like I totally dug my bar mitzvah, and I was kind of on a spiritual tip. I liked my cantor, rabbi not so much. But, you know, like I, I, I valued it. As soon as that happened, me and God broke up, and that was it. Or any concept. Like, I would leave rooms. Like, at college, this is very hard to do. Like, if someone would start talking about God, I would leave the room. And, you know, it was always, like, a lot of philosophical conversations I had to leave. So um, so that was, like, the big one. And bef- But before that, I had, I had the migraines, which says something. Um, I had the, uh, you know, I, I had the sort of all the hallmarks of depressive type. Um, but my medicine as it were, or my antidepressant at the time was sports. I loved sports as a little kid. So as long as I was playing little league and, you know, doing all those kind of things, um, I pitched, I played shortstop, you know, I played soccer, I played basketball. I was like the little point guard, like Mm. around your knees, like a gnat, you know, annoying you. Um, you know, my mom definitely, my mom passed away. It'll be six years in a few days. Um, and she, you know, she was very sweet and I think she had, you know, some depressive aspects and my dad is my dad. You know, we, we have a a good relationship and we had a good relationship then, you know, the, the thing that tore that relationship up was me starting to use, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I remember like the migraines would usually be preceded by some like unbelievable level of sadness or unbelievable level of like uh even before your cousin died even before my cousin died yeah there was do you, do you remember sp- specifically things that you would be super sad about i was sad about um well i you know there are totally there are events during elementary school when i skipped a grade it was not a good decision uh, I didn't make that decision. Um, back in the 70s, if you got straight A's for like more than 10 minutes, you skipped a grade. And so that's fine and dandy. You know, it's like, oh, okay, we'll challenge him more. But unfortunately, I got skipped into Thugs or Us. You know, it was like this group of kids, just the luck of the draw. It was just a group of kids who were just like, uh, fuck you and the fact that you're smart. Fuck you. You're short, you know, which is like a capital offense when you're, you know, in that age. I was too. And they it's were brutal. like, it's and brutal. Isn't it the worst? Yeah. Like being in the front, of, you know, like when they're doing things in size order uh, and you're like leading the pack and you don't know what's going on behind you. And yeah. 
And then when they, the other thing was, it was, uh, I had a couple of, uh, Jewish kids in my previous class, no Jewish kids in this class, which, you know, whatever, you know, you know, eight years old, what's going to happen. And as soon as they found out that that was there too, I don't even think they really knew what that meant. They just knew it was strike three, you know, like short, smart, Jewish, whatever the fuck that is. Let's kill them. <laughs> so I spent like the last three years or last, yeah, last three years. No last two years of my elementary school kind of on the run. And it was bad enough too, that I went to the other junior high school in town. Like I, we, not the one I was zoned for. It's like, let's get them away from the, the terror. So I think, uh, there was that, that sort of sense of, uh, betrayal by the universe sense of like, you know, um, uh, lack of safety. Um, and then that lack of safety was madly and wildly exacerbated by my cousin dying because then it's like the world is a very unsafe place and then i imagine you put uh an alcoholic you know treating his alcoholism with alcohol yeah and then the self-pity and the resentment and the anger and the selfishness and yeah. all the things that an addict um has mm-hmm. oh i got i i got that so like, like i said about that first experience when i was 12 i went into those attitudes and difficulties like immediately and i but the other thing was is that i was able to maintain my academics so that was my that was my cover mm -hmm. you know my parents were like you know they'd look at the report card straight a's I, like in ninth grade mr my gave out a plus pluses if he felt like it and, you know they look at the report card and like hey he must be doing fine and that's the way it's standing even when i got to pen uh, when I, when I left there through the university hospital <laughs> at the beginning of my junior year, um, did you graduate? I did not. Okay. Yeah. They don't have a two year degree. At <laughs> I, I asked about it, but they were like, could you please leave? You're an insurance liability. Oh yeah. I, I basically, uh, I, I mean, I eventually got my BA obviously so that I can go mm -hmm. on to uh, other stuff, but, um, uh, Penn. Yeah. I, I, I was 18 years old still at the beginning of my junior year. And I finally, uh, did that kind of drinking that scared my friends. And I, the way I remember it, they, uh, the way I remember them telling me what happened was they saw me like in my own vomit in between two parked cars. And they're like, we're done. <laughs> we got to like do something. And they took me to the hospital and you know, this is 1981, I guess. And so there's no, you know, adolescent rehabs or, you know, there's nothing and, and there's no psychiatrists or doctors who know what the hell they're talking about. And so his diagnosis was, you're a full of shit little 18-year-old, and I'm going to send you home to your father, and he'll figure you out. That was it. That was all I got. And so I went home, and my dad basically told me to take a nap for a couple of weeks. And then I started working at his, uh, his office in the city. And I would drink on the way there and do all kinds of things like stand by the water cooler, drinking lots of water. Cause that's really healthy for you. But I was just hung over. Um, you know, I'd go to like a Blarney stone on 14th street and drink shots at like eight 30. I mean, it was, it was nuts. I don't know how I, like, I kind of know how I total alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And that was my, that was in the end, that was my primary. Like I, there were lots of substances added, uh, through the years, but, um, alcohol was my first love. Um, I don't know how I got on that tangent, but so what did the, what did the bottom look like? Mm. So there were, are there you were... Skip, and are we skipping any over, over any big pieces before the bottom? 
Oh, there's, well, I mean, there's, you know, 14, 14 years of, uh, this, that, and the other, like lots and lots of using, um, music career, you know, had, you know, I, I got to travel in a van through much of America and much of Europe. Um, I got to, uh, you know, uh, one band I was in, we were in a Japanese commercial. We were like the face of cup of noodles for a year in Tokyo. Um, uh, the Pianosaurus, the toy band, they, that was the one that kind of got the most mileage of that. What do you mean, the toy band? So, um, camera, like 1982 or so, I was uh, uh, living with my girlfriend, Bianca Miller, and she was in a band uh, with Alex Garvin, who was uh, had formed a band with all toy instruments. Go to Toys R Us find the guitars that actually are with the frets in the right place, um, find the drum kit that sounds like something, and uh, play songs that Alex wrote. Um, at first, he actually did it as a cover band. He was at Riz, was he RISD, yeah. He was at RISD, and um, actually the original keyboard Rhode Island player, School of Design? Yes. Okay. And the, which is where the Talking Heads were mm -hmm. at. And uh, Alex recruited Rick Moody, the um, novelist was the original uh, piano player uh, when he, I guess Rick must have been at Brown. So anyway, Alex comes back to New York, recruits Bianca to play piano. She's like, hey, you want to audition for the toy band? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? So I go to Alex's house and he's got like this little Muppet Babies drum kit set up. And I sat down and he started playing one of his songs. And I just started hitting them as hard as you would hit. Mm -hmm. A drum kit and they didn't break so i just kept going and alex just you're hired because apparently anyone who had ever sat down at them before just like oh i better be tender and nice right. with these and i was just like what's the point you know so i and so that was it and um that band god we we broke up in 1988 that was the beginning of my bottom actually was the breakup of that and band. that was the band piano source that's piano source okay. yeah yeah. And um, Piano Source is the name of a toy piano that's still on the market. It's oh, like a okay. little keyboard with a dinosaur head. Okay. Alex was looking forward to eventually like having the big battle over the trademark or whatever. Yeah. You know, he thought that would be good news. But um, but Alex was a amazing songwriter. You know, just in his own right, he was a huge worshipper of Brian Wilson, uh, Alex Chilton, and Jonathan Richmond. And started a correspondence with Alex Chilton and Jonathan Richmond. I think Alex would actually like respond. Mm -hmm. And I think Jonathan Richmond might have responded once or twice, like, leave me alone, kid. <laughs> right. But um, eventually we opened for both of them. We uh, opened for Jonathan Richmond at Central Park Summer Stage. And we opened for Alex Chilton a lot of dates, like Knitting Factory in New York. And Was this post-Big Star? Yes, this is post Big Star. This is when he's in his uh basically those gigs he had a it was a three piece and they were doing like mostly like lounge music and he he was a character. You know, he was a character. I worshipped him too and I just, you know, totally I couldn't believe when I found out that that was the guy that sang the letter mm -hmm. when he was sixteen years old. Yeah. He's like Give me, Give me a, a ticket, ticket or an aeroplane. <laughs> and then he's got that it's, angelic voice. You know, yeah. Voice with Big Star. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. Um, so let's get back to uh, the, kind of the emotional mm -hmm. uh, arc of, so you 
the band breaks up in 88 or you leave the band mm-hmm. and and then then what happened so the band broke up in 88 around july and it broke up right when we had finished our second record and it was supposed to come out the last conversation i ever had with alex in my life was he said uh thursday we're going to take pictures for the album cover so i'll see you then i'll call you in a couple of days to give you the address i've we have never spoken again what yeah it's uh however many years almost 30 years later and so he just disappeared himself like he was fed up and he uh went off into the sunset never to be seen again have you tried to contact him since then i've you know a couple of times and i'm you know contemplating a more uh concerted effort um there was a long time where it was kind of like we're totally going to leave this in the past because it hurt too much you know like we were all looking for him the record company was looking for him we were looking for him and then it became clear he's done like he went to vermont and just went to the woods so um so i had already been through like bouts of like alcoholic gastritis i was a mess and so i basically ended up like curled up in a corner literally and so I said, I'm going to stop drinking, but I didn't know anything about support groups or anything else. So I just started, you know, rocking back and forth on, on the bed for 10 hours or so. Look, I'm sober, you know, and then go to bed. Did you have the DTs? Um, I, you know, that whole time is so fuzzy. I'm thinking that, so the, the, worst, of, the worst of my physical stuff was not at the very end. At the very end, I was doing like, you know, trying to control it. Mm-hmm. So earlier, I think any sort of things like the DTs and such like that were uh, masked by the other drugs I was doing. Like I would just sort of ride the wave of cocaine or uh, MDMA. I had a, an ecstasy dealer in Brooklyn <laughs> for a couple of years where I, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't like ecstasy. I'm like, I don't understand what is your problem because <laughs> I love everybody, you know, um, for two years, I was taking it like once a week at least. And sometimes more. And I ruined a couple more than one opportunity with alcohol. And I ruined a lot of opportunities too with the ecstasy. Cause I just sort of, what kind of opportunities push. you mean? Professional, professional yeah. music. Yeah. Oh Yeah. That was one of the fist fights. One of the fist fights was after I totally destroyed. We were playing the Peppermint Lounge. All the record companies were there to look at us. And just before the show, I thought to myself, you know, Bob is bartending at around the clock, down the block. Even though I'm completely surrounded by alcohol in this dressing room, I'm going to go have a few shots over there. You know, like complete insanity. Me, no reason. Um, downed i don't know how many like eight or nine shots in a row and you know how like you, you know they don't take effect immediately and i walk back i'm like oh time to play drums you know and show up to the gig and they're like ladies and gentlemen here they are and i get on the stage and i start playing and then all nine shots hit me at once and i prided myself in no matter how fucked up i was i would always hit the two and the four everything else was negotiable and i missed a two and everyone heard it and the whole band turned around and looked at me like, you know, fuck you, you've destroyed our dream. And I was too drunk to like join them in that feeling. Um, next day I felt it. So anyway, so that those kinds of, I have a bunch of those kinds of stories, self-sabotage mm-hmm. big time. So the, the bottom part, um, was me trying to stop and then not trying to stop, trying to stop, not trying to stop. And then finally, um, 
one of my friends, a, a friend of my girlfriend was, you know, getting some support for it. She said, you want to go join me? And it took her about eight months to actually get me to go. And then once I went, I was just, all right. Um, I just looked around and what I saw where I went was, it was Lower East Side. Everyone was in a black leather jacket. Everyone was in a band. It seemed. Mm-hmm. I was like, and they were all kind of smiling and they said they didn't drink. So I was like, all right, I'll try this. I can do this. So, um, yeah, I just threw myself in. I'm one of those people who got, um, like I ended up very quickly, like one of like the, I can't remember which Woody Allen movie it is where he's like walking around with like a Buddha cross and a star of David and a Bible, <laughs> you know, he's like, I'm going to try it all. You know, I mean, I, I eventually went to interfaith ministry school. I mean, I really just changed gears completely. And it was, it was about, uh, it had a lot to do with that 13 years of, you know, just being in a complete standoff with uh, matters of spirituality or anything like it. Um, I think that allowed for like, you know, a bottom related to that, that then was just like, all right, poked a little hole. All right. I'll not only consider this, but like all these cool people seem to be considering (laughs) this. So I'll consider it with them, you know? So, so yeah, the bottom it was, it was vicious. Like my depression by the, the, the last few years of it, it was all, I was not lampshade drunk at all i was morose Uh, it was all about self-pity anger at what wasn't happening that i wanted to happen what was happening alcoholics in that stage are intolerable it's intolerable apparently that's what jack kerouac was like at the end Mm. just mean just depressed and mean that guy that was so full of life and so changed so many people's consciousness um yeah yeah it's powerful it's powerful it's very powerful I mean, I, I, because I were, I've been working in addiction for a number of years now. And so when you work in addiction, you're mostly hanging out with the people who are at the cusp. And so, you know, I just get a, a healthy dose of the insanity. I, I just try to remember that there are children in adults' bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, when I start to get upset that they're um, being rude or selfish mm-hmm. or whatever. For one, I just remember... I was like that right. and can be like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but number two, I just remember, okay, this is, you know, this is what untreated alcoholism and drug addiction looks like. Yeah. Uh, well, would, now would be a good time to, to get to some of the uh, questions that, uh, that people have. Was there anything else that you wanted to share before we get into your stuff as, oh, a, sure. as a therapist? Whatever you like. Okay. Well, first of all, why don't you, um, well, the first question, please ask him to talk about the lead singer of Pianosaurus. <laughs> I think, I think you did that. We handled that. Um, yeah. are there any solid studies that shows that EMDR works or is it too new? So, uh, it's new, but it's not that new. It's, you know, it was, uh, developed in the late eighties and, uh, it was developed by someone, Dr. Francine Shapiro, who actually, from the very beginning knew that if she didn't research it like crazy, that no one would take it seriously. Like there's a lot of therapies out there and some of which I believe in and that work, but they aren't getting researched in any kind of quantitative way. And it's kind of, you know, it's hard. It's, you know, it's in a lot of ways, it's still a soft science. Mm -hmm. You know, there's only so much you can prove. 
Um, but at the same time, it's nice to have a nice evidence base. So she, from the very beginning, she just researched and researched and then told anyone and everyone who either was interested in the therapy or performed the therapy, please do case studies, do quantitative, do whatever you can. So as a result, it's actually one of the most researched therapies out there. You know, mm -hmm. it's like not that far behind CBT anymore. Uh, CBT has that, um, mark of evidence base based on, you know, such and so amount of data. Uh, EMDR, um, the, the feeling that I have about where it stands now in terms of its, uh, being accepted as a evidence-based treatment is the world health organization has a definition of it. American medical association, American psychiatric and psychological associations, all of them, um, recommend it particularly for, so this is what most of the research, if not a vast majority of it is how it is effective with diagnosable PTSD. And then the other sort of uh, gold standard aspect is um, pretty much the entire military. It's taken years because military is very insane bureaucracy, mm -hmm. um, but it is now uh, one of only three therapies that the military recommends for returning vets with PTSD. What are the other two? Uh, Trauma-focused CBT, which is CBT with a trauma focus, mm -hmm. and exposure, which is the, you know, the... Uh, the oldest and slowly exposing yourself to the thing that terrifies you. Yes. Which, you know, uh, do, do that with a vet, you know, it's, it's wow. the dropout rate with that kind of therapy, you know, and there are those of us who would say it's actually, you know, regardless of the, the fact that, you know, that's straight behavioral therapy, right? If you just keep on doing this, it will extinguish. And the fact is, if you get there, it works. Um, but are we re-traumatizing people? by having them, you know, like what they do essentially is read the event into a tape recorder and then go home and listen to it over and over. You know, I mean, it's really intense. Uh, EMDR uh, utilizes the traumatic memories or routes the traumatic memories through this protocol where uh, one of the things that I tell clients that I'm working with with EMDR, I say, I don't need to know your whole story. I actually just need a couple of newspaper headlines and then we'll go from there. And, you know, for some people, they're confused by that. A lot of people are just greatly relieved. You know, there are some people who want to tell the whole story. And I actually, I give them the heads up. It's like, that might help. But why don't we consider that you just give me a newspaper headline and we'll work together on this protocol. Anyway, the, the research base is very, very heavily uh, in favor of EMDR as a trauma. <laughs> so would a headline be kid gets shit deal? Yes. <laughs> Film at 11. <laughs> um. So to tell uh, the, the listeners that don't know what exactly EMDR is and what it stands for. Okay. So EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is basically just a branding problem that Francine Shapiro came up with when she started uh, with the therapy. Uh, it, it involves or it involved eye movements um, and eye movements are rapid eye movements back and forth. Don't try this at home, folks, mm -hmm. without a licensed person. But she came up with it while walking in the woods. She right? was walking in the park and brought up a crappy memory. Start, her eyes started moving back and forth. She felt a little better. She's like, that's weird. And then she did it again and it happened again. And so then she went to her clients, her patients and said, would, would you mind if I do this with you? And so at first, she just called it eye movement desensitization EMD. She thought what was happening was just like a drug-like reaction, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I feel a little better, it's, but who knows how long that's going to last. And 
people were coming back and saying it was lasting. Then she added some other therapeutic elements to the protocol. Um, a lot of what's in the protocol, there's elements of, uh, you could say, there's a hypnotic element. It's not hypnosis, but, you know, I mean, if you move your eyes back and forth, um, there's a CBT element. You know, there's a lot of use of, uh, you know, uh, faulty beliefs and, and things like that in the protocol. So um, the person uh, who's uh, going through EMDR will um, be led through this series of steps, um, uh, this series of phases. Uh, that involve all these different therapeutic elements and they end up in a place where it's not men in black, right? It's not eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. It's they have a completely different relationship to the memory that the memory uh, we think in terms, not of uh, three parts of the brain, but like three brains, right? The reptilian brain that we were share with the reptiles, the limbic brain that we share with the other mammals and that, you know, the emotional brain and then the prefrontal cortex, which only we have and a properly, adaptively processed memory will eventually make it to the prefrontal cortex, which can go, Oh yeah, that happened from the, the, from either of the other two. Yes. Okay. Especially the, well, amygdala, the reptilian brain and the limbic brain is where the fight or flight response lives. Mm -hmm. Right. So I get a fight or flight response. If it doesn't get to the neocortex, it's going to come back and live there right? Where it doesn't have any sense of time. It doesn't have any sense of like that. It's not happening now, uh, that it doesn't have a narrative so much as it has like smells and sights and sounds and all this. So that's why a person with PTSD, they'll get triggered by, you know, something, you know, easiest one is, uh, you know, the veteran who hears a car backfire and they dive under a desk, right? Because they just don't know that it, they're not there. And for a lot of them, they're diving under the desk, and as they're diving, they, re- they now really believe they're there. They're brought back to that place. If the memory is adaptively processed, there's a narrative, and that narrative is in the past, and it doesn't change my opinion. It might not change my opinion because, oh, yeah, that was really awful, but it's not happening now. So I can have this uh, 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 almost like a dialogue or a conversation with these memories, as opposed to if they're in my body expressing themselves in somatic symptoms, or if they're in my more primitive parts of the brain, I don't have access to them. And then there's also a lot around the brain science and I'm not the world's foremost uh, brain science guy, but I do know what I know in order to look at how EMDR works or how we believe it works. Um, and uh, when uh, we're in fight or flight, uh, the neocortical action can shut down completely. Um, what my colleague, Jamie Marich, who I uh, work with her, I uh, um, train people in EMDR through her institute, the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. Her way of saying it, she likes to say, uh, trying to talk to somebody who's in crisis is like sending an email without any Wi-Fi, right? Mm. Like that person, that part of the brain is literally offline. I mean, you, you think about it with a pr- drunk person, same thing, right? Trying to reason with a drunk person. Yeah. There's, there's no, there literally is nobody home. There can be literally nobody home. So, um, so what the therapy, uh, what, what Francine Shapiro realized, she's like, this isn't just desensitization. This is reprocessing. This is brain change. This is, uh, going from a maladaptive processing of the memory to an adaptive processing of the memory. And so, um, 
yeah, I've, from when I was trained in it, and when you're trained in it, you go through it, you know, with your partner. Doing I've, I've done a little, you not training, but I've done EMDR. Had it done. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And when I had it done to me, I was like, what the, what the fuck did you just do to me? <laughs> you know, it was like something that, you know, I didn't go for, I didn't go for a long ball. You know, it wasn't like a, a fluty pass, mm-hmm. but I was just like, uh, you know, something that had been bugging me. I was like, that doesn't bug me. What did you just do to me? And so, and it's gone from there, you know, and, um, I was actually giving a talk about this, about EMDR mindfulness at the, um, refuge recovery conference that just happened. It was the second annual refuge recovery conference. And I, I, someone asked me, you know, uh, does, uh, why do you use EMDR as opposed to, you know, there's other trauma therapies out there besides the ones I mentioned, there's somatic experiencing, there's brain spotting, there's all these things. And so I went through this lengthy explanation and then the person just said, so you use it because it works. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of yeah i guess that's right i could have said that you know instead but um yeah so my anecdotal and the research that i've done or looked at the research um it's very effective and so uh francine shapiro said if she had her druthers and could take it all back again she would have just called it reprocessing therapy mm. and then the eye movements uh what we talk about now is uh either bilateral stimulation or dual attention stimulus. So you can do it with tones in the ears or taps, you know, using pulsers or just, Mm -hmm. you know, someone tapping on your knees. Um, And then you can look at it just, you know, well, what's, what's that action? What is that bilateral action? You know, the way people respond when they're jogging or they're walking or they're drumming or they're dancing uh, or doing yoga. Bessel van der Kolk, who's one of the, you know, primary, uh, researchers and theorists on trauma, a uh, big fan of EMDR, he discovered yoga for himself like 15 years ago, and it's just like, this is it. This is the trauma treatment. So there's a lot to do with my belief in EMDR and the reason for EMDR uh, making the strides that it has uh, and somatic experiencing and the other more, you know, sort of is this idea that it's not just a cognitive treatment. And because if it was just a cognitive treatment, then how, how, what happens to the rest of that stuff? And so my experience has been, and I don't, I don't know if you've had this experience with people in your life, but so many uh, people that I know who are either sober a long time or who are quote unquote normies who have other, you know, issues perhaps they hit this wall or they cut, they go to therapy for like 10, 15, 20 years. And there's always, there's this one thing or these two things, or it doesn't seem to move. And, um, what I found EMDR really effective with is that like the people come to my office, like, yeah, I've been in therapy for 15 years and this didn't move. That didn't move. I recently had a client where we did eight sessions and it was, they had been in therapy their whole lives. And, we did eight sessions and we were very clear about what the issues were, you know, because I, I brought her through the process in a very mm. clear and uh, direct way. Like, Oh, this is what you want to work on. Okay. Let's see what that would look like to, to work on and made a treatment plan. And she, you know, eighth session, she's like, I think I'm done. Wow. I'm like, good. You know, that, that's the, that, that's the happy story. You know, like a lot of, and there, are there people where it just doesn't work for? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not one size fits all for sure. My experience has been thus far that um, 
for most people, it can be effective. Um, what people also misunderstand about EMDR, you know, in, in answering your question further, is that um, EMDR is in eight phases. Only phases three through seven are the phases where we're reprocessing trauma and I'm waving my fingers in your face and all that's going on. First two phases are just uh, history and assessment and developing readiness and, and get it, having the client understand what the process is going to be about. Cause you, you know, you can't just, okay, follow my fingers, you mm -hmm. know, like that's not therapy. And then the second phase is stabilization and readiness. And so, you know, that's part of EMDR. And so sometimes the first two phases are long, you know, so with your more complex cases and thing is, is that, you know, it's funny. I just got a little chill cause I was uh, talking to, he, I, I call him colleague. He's the person who brought me into the EMDR world, trained me in EMDR, mm -hmm. got me certified in EMDR. Um, and I have the great good fortune of, I'm going to get to present at the national conference on EMDR this, uh, August. Awesome. And he's going to be giving one of the workshops right after, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very awesome. But he was telling me he was just in uh, the Netherlands, uh, for the EMDR Europe conference. And the big argument was, do people with complex PTSD or severe attachment disorders, do they need a lot of stabilization before they do trauma reprocessing? And the European feeling is, nope, just start waving your finger in their face. And they were including addicts in that. Uh, Dr. Leeds, Andrew Leeds, he's more on the on the other side. Uh, they're actually, I think they're going to be working on a point-counterpoint kind of uh, research article together, giving both sides the argument. My side of the argument, as it were, or where I'm at and the reason why I'm doing that presentation is that my belief after years of working in addiction treatment and being sober before that um, is that EMDR is a great framework to view addiction treatment through and that most of what we do in addiction treatment in a center is the first two phases of EMDR. So let's look at it that way, work like the Dickens to help people get stabilized enough so they can do their trauma reprocessing. Because what's been said oftentimes is if you don't reprocess that trauma, the person is more prone to relapse. Like some of the people that I meet, you know, like 10, 15 years, they're going through a sober bottom and they're just, and, and it's mm -hmm. because they just never touched that and, or they never found a way to touch it and then deal with it. So, um, that's, kind of, but it's not, EMDR is not meant to be, um, used to, uh, treat addiction as an end. Like this is going to remove your addiction. So the, uh, again, so many wonderful voices out there right now. That's a very diplomatic that. way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't even decide whose voices I like and whose I don't. So I might as well do the diplomacy, right? Yeah. I mean, but you know, there are some people out there who are like, yeah, treat the trauma and you're no longer an addict. I am not in that camp. I am not in that camp either. But the camp I am in. And that person who said that is not an addict. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, so that's where that's where I do put on my addict badge, mm -hmm. right? Like I spend a lot of time. Like for instance, my uh, I'm a supervisor of clinicians at a couple of rehabs, and a majority of my therapists are not addicts, and I find them to be absolutely wonderful when uh, we use this EMDR framework to look at the cases. 
in as much as what we're talking about here is how do we stabilize a person to bring them to trauma reprocessing, which will then make their long-term recovery possible? And it's not about, and, and it's not about, okay, we've reprocessed your trauma. You may now proceed and do whatever the hell you want. It's no, we've reprocessed your trauma. And now you're, you're really in your skin and you have you're, a fighting chance to deal with your disease and you can continue to deal with your addiction you know, the, those aspects of your addiction that could always reflourish. But if you have this, um, and again, with the other flag that I've planted or the other place that I come from is this uh, Buddhist mindfulness, which you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Um, uh, you know, I basically was taken to a sobriety retreat at a Zen Buddhist monastery when I had about four months sober and I discovered for myself Zen meditation and I've never stopped. And so now I, um, I meditate. I teach meditation. I've taught meditation for a long time. I teach classes at Against the Stream Meditation, Buddhist Meditation Society on Melrose and out in Santa Monica. And um, the, refu- the one center where I'm working, Refuge Recovery Center, m- mindfulness is at the center of the treatment. And the way I view it is it's that's where that stabilization is coming. That's where that having some tools to, you know, to calm the mind. I had a, I had a, a good friend back in New York, Saul. Um, uh, he was one of my guides back in, in New York. He used to say, I would call him and I'd be like, and every time he would say, the first thing you have to do is calm down. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all I, that's why I think like Buddha would have said it if he had like a Bronx Jewish accent, you know, like it's, it's basically getting the mind to a place where it can stop spinning, stop making news stories out of nothing. And then we know what to do. Right. You know, and, and one of the things that I think is, is key and helpful is the, is the reprocessing of the trauma. I really see it like one of the places. And again, this is, it it would be fair to say that trauma is a uh, distorting lens that much like alcoholism or drug addiction is that when reality is passed through it, it's things are warped. Yes. Absolutely. Because it it has, you know, so a lot of people who have PTSD also have an alcohol drug problem, either that preceded it and just kind of joined or that as a result of it, right, Mm -hmm. that it grows out of that trauma. And yes, so a lot of the symptomology of PTSD or post just any kind of post-traumatic, it doesn't have to be diagnosable PTSD. Um, one of the changes to the language um, that Dr. Shapiro has made over the last few years, uh, it used to be uh, big T trauma and little t trauma, right? Big T trauma is those things that any, quote unquote, anyone would see as traumatic. And then little t trauma, I always describe it as, you know, my dad looked at me cross-eyed when I was four. Now, anytime someone looks at me cross-eyed, I'm crazy. Um, and that was the other thing is that uh, originally the the PTSD diagnosis, which didn't arrive in the DSM until 1980, which is totally batshit crazy. Um, it was more focused on the ev- nature of the event. And over the years, we're now at a place where it's like people understand it's not about the event. It's about how it affected the person. So um, so the uh, changing the language was from uh, small T trauma to adverse life events. 
So that's a way of saying that, to my mind, that's a way of saying that uh, it doesn't have to be traumatic to be something that you wouldn't want to have a therapy that helps to treat that, and that that treatment might actually help a person to become more stabilized in their recovery. Whether it's so it could be an emotionally absent parent, a well-meaning emotionally absent parent. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's one of the biggest struggles um, I hear in people that listen to the podcast is mm-hmm. them having difficulty giving weight to uh, their feelings and feeling like it's they should be able to get over it they should and i always say there's no should you're feeling what you're feeling yeah. and it doesn't it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what and so many things that fuck us up um it doesn't matter what the other person's intent was it doesn't matter whether there was some slight complicity on your part because you decided to show up at the i don't know the auto show where the you know the two cars crash together or whatever mm-hmm. it it's about that that feeling that the world isn't safe you know i'm a weak person whatever it is that's mm-hmm. that's the 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 place to begin to but it almost it almost seems like the people whose whose traumas be they collective or a single event aren't dramatic have that additional hurdle of trying to convince themselves that they are worth compassion and um giving weight how do you how do you help convince those people that what they're dealing with is every bit as valid as somebody's who who whose was dramatic one of the most important principles of trauma-informed care is meeting the person where they're at and making sure that you don't try to um, uh, make them believe that you completely and utterly understand their story. Like if I were to sit with a veteran, I've never been in combat. Oh, I know how you feel. That's not going to go well. So when it comes to a person who uh, underestimates whatever happened to them, it's I don't try to convince them otherwise, and I don't try to... um, I don't know how to say it, like browbeat them into like, oh, but you don't even know how bad this was. Um, basically, just take a position of uh, they're the, you are the expert on you and, you know, together we'll figure this out. And a lot of it comes, a lot of my best moments come just when I start giving the psychoeducation about trauma and about EMDR because um, they go hand in hand for me. If I sit with someone and they had what they either think was uh, not worthy of being called trauma, or they literally didn't have anything that would be classified as trauma, but adverse life events have changed the way they see the world. When I outline it for them that way, and just sort of like make this little map of um, that there is no hierarchy of trauma, and that your experience is your experience, for the most part, most people seem to come around and sometimes it's just uh, for someone who's, you know, who's been really compromised in that area, just spend a lot of time holding the space, you know, making it, making things safe, as safe as possible. And then there's a lot of uh, alterations to the protocol and also other methodologies or ways of looking at it uh, that allow me to work with that person 
at the level that they're at. Um, I don't, it's not like I'm spending time tricking them into eventually reprocessing, but oftentimes that's where we land. The the thing that I found that helped me the most to give weight to what happened to me, or at least to cement that, was that I had to experience the opposite of that to feel the distance in the two experiences. I had to feel nurturing to realize what an absence there was of it in my household. Mm-hmm. I had to feel vulnerability to realize how many walls I had built up as mm-hmm. a kid. I had to uh, feel the beauty of having my pain witnessed to begin to give compassion to myself, to, to see others move to tears when I would tell my story with almost indifference. Mm-hmm. And those were the things that that helped me um, because it, 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 I think nothing tells you like a feeling. Mm. My uh, therapist in New York, uh, his name was Simon, which is a great name for a therapist. Simon says, <laughs> um, and he, uh, he used to say that, and this is before EMDR, I didn't know what EMDR was. He used to say this process that we're doing it's uh, you're reparenting yourself. You didn't get it or you didn't get the version that you wanted or you, you didn't land and we're going to do over. And uh, the amount of that that I received from him uh, is my most important therapeutic memory for myself. And he also is responsible for me being a therapist and I fought him for like a good two or three years. He's like, you'd be good at this. I'd be like, I don't want to do that. I want to get a record deal. <laughs> and he, and, and the thing that he said, um, that turned the sort of turned me around in the end, he said, do you realize that this is a really creative profession? Do you realize how much creativity I have to put into helping someone like you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I think I get that, you know? And yeah, I mean, I, it took me another couple of years when I moved out here um, to LA uh, to, to answer that. But yeah, that, that sort of being witnessed, that being uh, compassionately held in a space, um, that, uh, that connection, um, I, you know, I, I was in Ohio recently and I went, uh, I was near Akron. So I went to Akron <laughs> and, um, and when I was there, I went to the gatehouse where Bill Wilson and, uh, Bob Smith had their first conversation that began Alcoholics Anonymous. And I felt energy coming off of that thing. I'm not, I'm not an energy <laughs> person and I felt energy because that is what all that is, you know, that and therapy, right? I mean, EMDR aside, right? Uh, every study that seems to come out about well, how does therapy work or why does it work? It's all about the relationship. So, you know, people get a little bit confused. They see EMDR. It's like such, so technique looking, but you know, 90% of what I'm doing is the relationship. I'm just, which doing is it energy, differently, which is energy. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, to me, that's what my God is, is, is mm. positive energy. That's, mm-hmm. I don't know where it emanates from, 
but it's, I know it when I feel it. Mm-hmm. I know it when I feel it. And so I, you know, I like to think of it as, uh, um, uh, electricity. And so my job every day is to find the sockets to plug my lamp into mm-hmm. so that I can see more clearly and feel warmer and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know how electricity works, but I know it works when I plug into it. And that's mm-hmm. uh, spirituality is the, is the same thing for me. And I don't have to know how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's my take on, uh, on that. Um, somebody asked, did you read the book Unbroken Brain? If so, what are your thoughts about the idea of, quote, getting over an addiction? Well, I think I know how you're probably going <laughs> to respond to that one. Well, we, you know, we talked a little bit about it yeah. uh, a little bit ago, but, um, uh, I actually, uh, I know, uh, or I knew better back, back in the day, I knew the writer Maya, um, and, I haven't read the book yet, so that's the first mm-hmm. answer to the question. And then, um, although the book reviews I've read, you know, it sounds like she's on to something along the line, around uh, calling for more compassion and compassionate care for addicts. You know, like that. I'm down still, for that, right? That there's still with, with boundaries, stigma. with boundaries oh, and consequences. Please. Boundaries and consequences are my friends. Um, not just delivering them, yeah. <laughs> but actually having my own. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm still in that school that, you know, I mean, I'm, look, I'm sober. I'm sober 27 years. And I believe that if I, if I were to start having a cocktail, um, I wouldn't start moderately or I might start moderately and then I'd go off the rail. You know, like that's, that's just where I sit with it. Yeah. Um, uh, where I uh, do sit with it, I guess, too, is in this uh, this place that I come from with the EMDR. I also com- combining the EMDR with uh, Buddhist mindfulness and Buddhist philosophy, which is, you know, uh, the first truth of the Buddha was life is suffering, which um, I always want to say, duh. <laughs> but, you know, that life contains suffering. And uh, the second truth is that it's caused by craving and clinging and unhealthy attachment. And um, he didn't say unhealthy attachment, but we have to make that mm. clear in modern times. Anyway, so my thought is, is, you know, everybody is suffering because of craving and clinging and addicts just do it better, right? <laughs> I like that. And then the third truth is, how do you, you know, how do you end suffering? Well, you have to go to the root causes. So you have to end craving and clinging. Um. And then the fourth truth is that, you know, he laid out the Eightfold Path, which happens to uh, three of the factors of the Eightfold Path are specifically about meditation. So that's what made his whole jam different, is that that absolute focus on mindfulness meditation being a huge core. But a lot of people don't think about or talk about is the middle three factors, which are the so-called ethical factors, which is right speech, which comes first right speech, right action, and right livelihood, right? Um, Otherwise known as don't say dumb shit, don't do dumb shit, and don't be an asshole at work. (laughs) But that that too, it's not just the meditation, but the living in that way, which... That to me is active spirituality. Yes. That's that's it's spirituality in action, yes. Yeah. And then the first two factors are wisdom and intention, right? So it's getting a better idea of how to do things and then setting the intention that I'm going to 
live this way. So um, one of the things I saw, uh, a friend of mine wrote an article uh, in thefix.com. I don't know if you know, it's a recovery uh, uh, website, um, uh, a lot of good writers. Mm -hmm. And she uh, wrote an article uh, called um, Bill W. and the Buddha. And she found a pamphlet from like the 1940s from the early, one of the early Akron groups and it was edited by Dr. Bob. And it said something to the effect of, um, if you look at the Buddhist philosophy and he listed out the eight factors, one could say that you could either substitute it or add it to the AA program and that ge uh, generosity and selflessness are at the core of it. So I just love that. You know, and surrender. That, and surrender. Yeah. And all of that um, put together for me is a recipe for psychological wellness and a spiritual access. And again, like I said, I went to interfaith ministry school. I actually, I had a sober bottom that uh, led me to live at a Buddhist monastery for a year. Um, so I value, you know, the, um, that which is uh, metaphysical and not explainable. And I also very much value like, this morning I woke up and my six year old needed attention and I gave it to her <laughs> and I, you know, got her to where she needed to go and I went to work and did the things I needed to do. And that's how it manifests too, you know, but I do like incense and peppermints and all the rest of it. <laughs> uh, what is his opinion on the source of addiction? Is someone born an addict or is it something triggered by trauma or environment? Well, we touched on that a little bit. Um, so, uh, the, the colleague slash trainer of me that I mentioned earlier, Andrew Leeds, he, he's not, uh, an addiction specialist. Um, and when we would talk about it, he would, he, his theory of addiction, he, and he's, you know, very succinct in his language. And he said, addiction, genetics, trauma, or both. <laughs> and that's kind of where I land. So I think there are there is a genetic component of predisposition. Yeah, that's what I believe. Yeah. And that, you know, like, and then if I don't, you know, lay, lather alcohol on top of that, mm -hmm. I, I won't develop it. And um, so I think the genetics there. And then trauma, again, th this is coming, this is a combination of what I've seen in the research and a big old hefty helping of anecdotal from my perspective mm -hmm. and just how many, you know, intakes I've done at a rehab or conversations I've had with clients and it's just trauma, trauma, trauma. Yeah. And sometimes it's the big T trauma and sometimes it's a small T trauma. And then the other thing that I've noticed is, you know, a great number of addicts and alcoholics have childhood trauma. And then those that don't, 
serve up some trauma to themselves in their active addiction. I mean, it's mm. very hard to not traumatize yourself in the midst of an active addiction. Yeah. I mean, even the per you know, like you think about, you know, like what about the lonely person who just drinks in their house, three bottles of wine a night and goes to sleep. Well, the trauma of loneliness, um, Absolutely. Like it's, you know, so, so anyway, so it's, I'm, I'm a big both and person, which makes scientists go nuts because then you can't prove anything, but I, I'm really, uh, invested in that both and notion. So I, I am too. Um, how does the spiritual aspect apply to addiction recovery? Um, I think that's kind of the ephemeral, uh, part of it, isn't it? Um, I was trying to describe this to somebody the other day when I used to, I used to need to get loaded to feel peace. And in recovery, I've substituted living a principled life with meaning and purpose. And that brings me peace. Mm -hmm. So I, don't feel the need to reach for peace in an artificial way. How would you talk about the spiritual aspect to recovery? So there's a couple of layers to it for me. And one is that, you know, I access spirituality through recovery. And then I was taken to that uh, Buddhist retreat. And then I went to interfaith ministry school and dropped out, by the way. Um, which you didn't get kicked out. That would have been a good story. I, I, <laughs> well, here's the, the, the good part of that story is I dropped out and then a friend of mine came up to me one day and said, Hey, you went to interfaith ministry school, marry us, you know, like perform our marriage ceremony. I was like, I dropped out. He goes, I don't give a shit. Do whatever you have to do to marry us. Which, you know, I've, I've married like 15 couples at this point, but, um, so I figured it out point and click, whatever that, uh, whoever I'm ordained by on the point and click. Um, so, so very early on, you know, sort of, uh, Buddhist Dharma was, uh, you know, was what I looked towards for my, uh, sort of direction for my solace. And in the Zen practice, it's very, uh, it's not about reading and studying. It's about meditating your brains out. Right. So for a long time, I just really, did a lot of meditation and through that practice came to a lot of wonderful, uh, experiences and conclusions, you know, everything from, you know, just being able to realize that I was a human being sitting on the ground, which my Zen teacher found very, he's like, wow, <laughs> he actually, actually what he said was, how old are you? <laughs> I said, 36, which is how old I was. And he said, not bad. <laughs> <laughs> but um so then uh now that i'm practicing more in the uh insight uh vipassana meditation um tradition there's more there's been more like looking at the four noble truths and the eightfold path and reading and doing insight meditation and developing insight through these practices and through that i became very uh, attached, I know that's not very Buddhist of me, but very attached to those three ethical factors and how much they drive my spirituality. Speak or right. Lack thereof. Speak right, act right, work right. And, and um, the other thing is, is that Buddha, the thing I like about Buddha is that... Because there's a lot I don't like about Buddha. I'm uh, kidding. 
<laughs> that guy. <laughs> um, one of the things that I like about Buddha is that he, you know, people, because he was the spiritual jam master, um, everyone was like, hey, are you God? And he's like, no, nah, I'm not God. I'm a person. And then it's like, well, are you like an angel? Are you this? Are you that? He's like, nope. And they say, well, what are you? And he said, I am awake, right? Which is what literally what uh, Buddha means, awakened one. And then, of course, because he was this teacher who then wandered around teaching for the next 45 years, all the time, he's asked about the hereafter, he's asked about God, he's like, you know, every metaphysical question under the sun. And his answer pretty much every time was something along the lines of, I don't know, <laughs> and or more along the lines of, um, doesn't matter. You know, he said, I teach one thing, or sometimes people say, well, it's actually two things, but he said, I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. So he was basically saying, you can live the spiritual life. God is optional. You know, if you have a God, that's great. If you don't, you also can live, speak right, act right, mm -hmm. live right, do mindfulness meditation, develop insight, become yet still more of a loving kind compassionate, appreciatively joyful, equanimous person. So that's sort of been, that's been my baseline for all these years. Although, and I've been through, uh, seriously, I, I, I shared about this before. I, I, I had a I basically had a vision of Jesus when I was like nine months sober. And, um, the way I remember it <laughs> is he basically was like, Oh, you like that Zen stuff? All right. <laughs> that was like, that was the interaction. I mean, well, remember my shoulder. Remember, Jesus was Jewish. He was. <laughs> and then, and then all the Jews have become Buddhists. So it all makes sense. <laughs> it all comes together in a perfect. There was a certain Long Island kind of uh, delivery uh, yeah, to yeah. that, that. Oh, yeah. yeah that was nice. That was nice. That's great. So that's, that's, you know, so my feeling or the way that I've, taught it all these years because I I've only had one person that I felt I couldn't help or one person who, I don't mean mean it that way but one person that I couldn't help with this issue where they came up to me and said hey what if my higher power is Satan and I was like you got to talk to that guy over there because I, <laughs> I don't really know the answer to that like I that one I can't help you with but um but you know I've done a, I've had a lot of luck with or I've had a lot of experience with um, maybe this is because of the way I think of it is that spirituality is a continuum and atheism is one of the things on that continuum, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when I think of the Buddhist path, you know, like a whole bunch of my friends over at Against the Stream Refuge Recovery identify as Buddhist atheists, right? And how spiritual are they? Pretty darn spiritual, right? Yeah. Living, living the good life. So anyway, the point being like, you know, allowing for that. And then that, that also in the, uh, in those uh, support programs, mm -hmm. uh, there's that talk of um, that it's the uh, God of your understanding, which they meant that, you know, that was something that they realized that as they were tooling it together and putting it together, there was one guy who was like, I don't like this whole thing you're selling me. And so I'm leaving. And they realized, oh, my goodness, we officially suck at this <laughs> and we need to rearrange it a little bit to include everybody you're talking about when they were creating the 12 steps yes yeah. and when they were creating uh as particularly the, as we understood him and yeah. they underlined it for a reason 
right? Yeah. Is they realized that if they didn't make it all inclusive, if they kind of made it into a, like a club about this or that type of They would never reach. It would die. Yeah. It would wither on the vine. Yeah. Let me ask just a couple more questions sure. before we wrap up. Okay. Um, I'm a victim of sexual abuse and an addict. I would love any advice on how to identify as a human and stop identifying as a victim. Mm. Wow. So, um, there's a couple of ways that that can be answered. Of course, this is shorthand. Um, a long time ago, I was um, having a hard time with my recovery, and I went to one of my trusted advisors, um, Jim from Queens, and he said, why don't you just take the first three steps, the first three aspects of this thing, and change them into three words, awareness, acceptance, and action. So acceptance always sounds like this huge passive thing. It's not. It's a very active thing. Awareness, awareness of what it is that happened to me, awareness of, and even that awareness of like, I'm identifying this way or I'm identifying as a victim. And then a lot of people leapfrog into action. And it starts this cycle going of just, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. If you can add that acceptance part and the way that acceptance part can be healed or brought about has to do with um, being in the company of other people who have been through that and who maybe are a little further along. Uh, the kind of reparenting and bonding experience that you and I were talking about um, that can come from therapy or come from another kind of healing uh, modality. Um, and part of the acceptance is that, you know, I, uh, I used to do, we didn't, we didn't get into this, but I used to do diversity work. I used to do, uh, uh, I taught high school English in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, the Crown Heights riots happened. I ended up becoming like this, you know, anti-prejudice, anti-discrimination educator. And, you know, what that was about was, uh, our being able to integrate, all the aspects of ourselves, right? And the aspects of self that uh, the questioner is talking about, they're very, very painful and very, very, it's like you want to deny them, you want to toss them away. So that's what the acceptance is. The acceptance is, is that this is not all of me. This is a part of me. I'm not my story. I am not my story. And I'm certainly not these two or three aspects of my story. And I'm, I'm sorry if it sounds like a, you know, an infomercial for EMDR, <laughs> but um, going back to something that you said earlier about um, the experiencing the opposite, right? <laughs> a big part of EMDR is not just bringing up the trauma memories. It's also helping install the positive stuff. If I don't have positive stuff for the traumatic material to land on, I'm, I'm actually kind of in trouble. So that's part of the whole... <laughs> um, um, early on in 
the development of EMDR, the lack of sort of a positive resourcing aspect of the protocol was called the missing piece. And a couple of other people came up with that missing piece. So there's a lot of work around like resourcing and giving the person that full experience of themselves. So they're not, so they can no longer only identify as the victim or the victim piece doesn't come up the same way because there's these other aspects, these resource aspects of themselves. So that's where acceptance is not like this passive thing. That's the work, right? Is like developing the pot, you know, like finding and developing the positive, accepting and working with and, and trying to find some resolution, some healing for that, which has been difficult. And then we move into action. And then actually doing it. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a great explanation. Um, how do we repair the original wound? Mm, that's a pretty big question. Yeah, I saw that one. Um, TV? Just watch a lot of TV? A lot of TV. The more couch potato, the greater the healing. You know, my, my, it sort of depends on one's, you know, like, so original wounds are not cookie cutter, I think. The way tr good trauma therapy works is that it doesn't have the idea that um, I have to find the original wound in order to treat it, that if I treat whatever wounds I can find, that there's a chance that the healing of the later wound or the not as original wound will, not the credits will transfer, but they're, it's sort of like they're on a string with nodes of memories. And if I clear one or two here, that it might get back to that original. I, I completely uh, agree. Uh, it, it reminds me of when um, in your support group, sometimes you're, you're getting in touch with what your fears are. And very often, the, you know, there's this thing they call pulling the thread on the, on the fears. So you realize, uh, I'm afraid of getting to work late. Well, what's the fear underneath that? Mm -hmm. Well, then the fear is that my boss will be mad at me. Mm -hmm. What's the fear underneath that? That I'll get fired. What's the fear underneath that? That I won't be able to pay my rent. What's the fear underneath that? Then that I nobody will help me. And then I'll be homeless. And that nobody will love me. Mm -hmm. And then I'll die alone. And it's just, you just keep, there. there's a breadcrumb trail to yes to all of that. Um, the, the Buddhist verbiage for that is uh, monkey mind, right? Yeah. That we're just going from branch to branch, from thought to thought. And uh, alcoholics, addicts, depressives, anxious people, PTSD sufferers, we all skew negative, you know, like yeah. when we're in our thing. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you so much for, uh, Stevens, for coming in and uh, helping us understand EMDR better and sharing your story. If people want to get a hold of you um, or check out anything you have on the web, what, what's mm -hmm. the best way to do that? So uh, best location is drdanziger.com, D-R-D-A-N-S-I-G-E-R.com. And on my website, I've got... Uh, there's loads there. There's a little bit about uh, the presentation I'm going to do on EMDR coming up. I've got a calendar. I've got a blog. Um, I've also got a book that I've finished. And, awesome. What's um, it called? It's called Clinical Dharma, 
And it's basically uh, a book designed to help helpers to help themselves. So it's designed for folks who um, are in either the helping professions or are avocationally helpers to develop a deeper uh, Buddhist practice or clinical Dharma practice in order to make them more effective and also healthier. What a great idea. And so I've got uh, Mark Marin's writing the forward for me. Awesome. And um, Noah Levine, the uh, founder of Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society, is writing an introduction. And um, yeah, it's coming out in October. And so uh, it, people who sign up for my newsletter uh, get a free sample chapter. So that's that's usually the best portal awesome to find and, me. and you're on twitter at dr danziger uh, d-a-n-s-i-g-e-r yes uh thanks so much steven thank you paul wow what a what a great conversation i learned so many uh so many things about uh the brain and trauma and emdr turns out i don't know everything i uh i have some apologies to make uh, before I take it out with uh, some surveys, I want to give some love to our sponsor, Talkspace. It's an online therapy company, and they make it super easy to connect with a licensed, licensed therapist, handpicked just for you for as little as $32 a week. I am a huge believer in online therapy. It is awesome if you, you live in the boonies um, or you just find going to therapy too inconvenient or too expensive or too embarrassing to make it into an office, you should give Talkspace uh, a shot. You can use text, audio, and video message uh, with your therapist as much as you want. Uh, your Talkspace therapist can listen to you vent about whatever you want to vent about. And it's really nice to have a safe place where you can just be you without judgment. So to sign up or learn more, go to Talkspace.com slash M-I-H-H. And there's a special offer. Offer. My brain is like Jello right now, um, but it's kind of fun having the flu because it's it's if you're like a recovering sober person, it's kind of like you you're so loopy. It's almost kind of like you're getting a free high. Um, as a special offer for our listeners, you can use coupon code M I H H to get thirty dollars off your first month and show your support for this podcast. The more you support our advertisers the more they advertise with the podcast, and that helps keep it going. Um, so check out Talkspace. Talkspace, therapy for how we live today. Um, I was going to give you a bunch of stuff about how to support the show, but I don't really feel like it. I'm just going to jump into <clears throat> the surveys. I don't think we have any shame and secret surveys um, I wanted to keep the the pile small. This is <laughs> that is the stupidest joke. I want to keep the pile small in honor of my penis. Uh, Londo shares about his depression. I always think I'm messing up my life and hate myself for everything that I do wrong. About his PTSD, I am constantly in fear that something bad will happen. I will not be able to deal with it and have to kill myself. Snapshot from his life. My dad died when I was 14. After that, I had very, bite, very bad fights with my mom. She would constantly make me feel guilty because my grades dropped and I did not have the energy to help around the house. 
She was always asking me why I had to make her feel even worse. She even said many times that someday she will kill herself because of me. That is one of the most abusive things I've ever heard a parent say. That is so fucked up on so many levels. And I'm so sorry, Londo, that that is the sick mother that you were that you were dealt. And I can't imagine what kind of a number she did on your self-esteem and how you view yourself in the world. But sending you some love, buddy. Monica shares about her anxiety. It feels like my skin no longer belongs to me. Wow, that is a good one. About experiencing obesity. It feels like I'm slowly suffocating myself and everyone else thinks it's hilarious. Yeah, I think we're just starting as a society, starting to see how fucked up and shaming our weight-related humor is the more we understand the depths of people's issues, um, be it body image or obesity or an eating disorder. Um, I really, I really hope that our society is becoming more awakened. Uh, snapshot from her life. I was doing a music degree in piano. My male piano teacher often told me, uh, and this was his unsolicited advice, that I have a beautiful face, but because of my weight, I would have to leave North America in order for it to be appreciated. That year, I flunked out of my music degree because I was depressed. You should have told him that uh, he would have to go to another planet for that comment to be helpful. I like how I always think of the snappy comeback, but in my life, I never think of the snappy comeback. I just shut down, my face burns, and then as I get in my car, I think about killing them. Nito shares an awful moment. About a year ago, uh, and Nito is a he, uh, about a year ago, my now ex-fiance and I were starting to face the reality that we were terrible for each other and we were falling apart. Our relationship had been deeply codependent for several several years, and we were needy and nasty and hurting at each other so much it's hard to sort out who might have been emotionally who might have emotionally abused who. I think we were coming to terms with this, and we just had a fight. We collapsed on the couch together just when the music we'd been ignoring changed, and the mountain goats "No Children" came on. That song is the definitive anthem of mutually destructive codependency. And in between laughing and sobbing, we held each other and belted it out in this perfect shining moment of self-awareness and resignation and totally hopeless love. Thank you for that. Scared Lion shares about her depression. Um, Excuse me. Uh, She has bipolar, too. The steady ground lasts such a short amount of time. The rest is up, down, or mixed. About her love addiction. Obsessing over someone who I logically know I don't want in my life. About her codependency. My day is ruined by your life choices and behavior. That is so good. Oh, my God. That is so dead on. Snapshot from her life. I honestly don't know if my mood is high and rapid very low 
or in a mixed state. It's so frustrating. I'm awake a lot and living on three hours of sleep, listening to music all night, smoking too much, and thinking it's a good idea to message an ex that I don't really want to. At the same time, I feel paranoid and frightened about, quote, bad people and criminals, so I'm heightened about safety, looking out the windows, etc., but I'm also low in my mood and I'm struggling to do my daily living activities, like running and eating, and with thoughts of, what's the point? I should probably see my doctor, but my thinking is that she will either think I am totally unwell and need sedating or will send me away for wasting her time, neither of which she has ever done. Thank you for that. That is so detailed. And I hope that by the time you finish that sentence, you answered yourself, especially neither of which she has ever done. And we'll go back and see her. You know, one of the things I've noticed is when we're in our depression or addiction or whatever our mental battle is that we're struggling, we tend to distort and extrapolate, and it's very rarely in line with reality. Aegean, uh, who is a trans female, shares a happy moment. I've been struggling with OCD my whole life, but it's gotten completely out of control this year. I've been out of work on disability because of it and recently attempted suicide. My family was pretty mad at me for doing so and in not understanding how much I've been struggling, accused me of manipulation and being dishonest because they expected me to be able to function as I had in the past. This caused me to stop talking to my parents, but really hope to be able to work things out with my sister. After all, she found me overdosed in bed called the authorities for help, and the nurses told me after I regained consciousness that she was very word, worried and obviously loved me a lot. I owe her a lot of thanks and also consideration for having to see me that way. The happy moment was this last Christmas Eve when my sister came to visit me at the group home I've been staying at. For her drive over, I sent her the co-narcissism mini-episode of the podcast, and it hit her like a ton of bricks. When we were hanging out that night, we talked for about four hours and we both made realizations about our narcissistic parents, how crippled with co-narcissism we both are, and differences in how we've been able to cope or not cope in some instances. She told me how she now understood why I was upset with my dad and why I had given up trying to get him to understand. She also acknowledged my personal struggle with OCD and coming out as trans. This time, when I told her about my persistent morbid thoughts of dying and the paranoia and anxiety it causes, she actually said that she could understand the circumstance that led me to attempting suicide. She also opened up to me about her problem for the first time in ages. While talking to her about this, I mentioned a few instances where she made impressions on me about certain things, and she started to tear up. She said that it meant so much to her that I said I learned something from her because she feels like her efforts go largely unnoticed. We hugged like ten times. And by the time she left, I couldn't tell, I could tell she didn't actually want to go, which hadn't been the case for several years now. I went into this Christmas thinking about how I was broke and homeless and wouldn't be celebrating with family, which in my estimation would top even the worst Christmases growing up. It turned out to be one of my favorite Christmases to date. It was about love and understanding instead of gifts and guilt, which is always why I hated Christmas. I love you, Paige. Thank you for your love and understanding. Wow. It is amazing when we get vulnerable, what can happen. Whew. Thank you for that. Brown Blob shares about his depression. 
I'm a mannequin in a store that went out of business. Fuck, is that good? Oh, my God. Uh, Tamara, or Tamara, shares about her depression. It's like slowly trudging through mud while your friends are walking on the pavement and you're beating yourself up for not being able to keep up with them. God, that is... It's so comforting to me to be able to hear you guys express these things so in such a detailed way. It just it gets through to me like nothing else. Emotional Donor shares uh, one of her happy moments. She writes, I never cry, ever. Usually it comes around after seeing sad videos involving animals. I'm also super sensitive to social injustices. So when I view either of these things, the floodgates open. It doesn't last, though, because as soon as my 75-pound dog senses that I'm upset, he hurls himself into my lap, wraps his front legs around my neck, and licks my tears until I start laughing. It's the single greatest therapy I've ever encountered. Oh, my God, I want to experience that. <coughs> <coughs> So sorry about, yeah, apologize for your flu, Paul, because it's your fault. Mm, I'm a casualty, shares about their depression. Uh, she writes, my clinical depression feels like my soul got hit by a bus and died on the scene. You know, I, a couple of years ago when I started some of these, I thought, you know, these are going to peter out eventually. We're going to run out of ways to describe our battles. Not even close. Not even close. Ginger Tea and Tats shares a happy moment. At the pharmacy on Christmas Eve, the pharmacist told me my insurance had been deactivated. My antidepressants would cost $100, which meant I probably wouldn't want them, right? No, I said. I need those and pulled out my credit card. Now... I'm already so deep in debt that if I were in a rowboat, there's a hole in the bottom just hemorrhaging water while my retail job is a spoon I can use to give myself maybe five more minutes. But I didn't think twice about the credit card. A hundred dollars more debt seemed fair when a missed dose would mean suicidal urges and seizures on Christmas. Before I could swipe, however, the pharmacist, who looked like a younger Alex Voss uh, with secretary glasses, Secretary glasses, a colorful chest piece, and wine-colored lipstick gave me a long look and said, hold on, I'll be right back. I heard her talking with someone out of view, catching the phrase, she says she needs it. When she returned, she made friendly small talk with me about her own antidepressant withdrawals while punching things into a computer. Finally, she said, okay, it's $14. I was glad I had to look down at the credit card terminal because my eyes suddenly welled up with tears. Compared to the shitload of debt I already have, a hundred bucks is nothing. But this woman's non-judgment, the nonchalance in which she went out of her way to help me when I didn't even ask, overwhelmed me. I thanked her then, but if she's listening to this podcast, I wanted to thank her again. Oh, I thanked her then, but if she's listening to the podcast, I want to thank her again. Let's, let's call that one again. Let's go British on it. It may have cost her nothing but a little time, but it meant so much to me. Thank you for showing me we are not alone. Thank you for sharing that. 
Blue June shares about her codependency. Like if I can untangle your life, mine will mirror the perfection. So good. It is, it, and I think codependency is like, I guess all issues are kind of hard to see, but This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself PTSD Pussy. And she writes, I've been discussing issues with my abusive mother a lot recently in therapy. Oh, okay. So she's been discussing with her therapist issues about her abusive mother. Stereotypical, I know. And I finally had a moment that summed her up so well. Early in December, my girlfriend proposed to me. As expected, I was super excited and texted those in my family who I don't often want to speak with on the phone. The text message conversation with my mom went as follows. Me. She proposed and I said yes. Mom, I stayed home from work today because I have a migraine. I laughed so hard I started crying and now it's become the thing to say in my friend group whenever someone gives any exciting news. I have a migraine. Totally the same thing. (laughs) Thank you for that. Eliza shares about her ADD. Instead of working on this project for work, what you really need to do is research knitting patterns for cat sweaters. About her anorexia, my body was grown wrong and I need to starve to fix it. By withholding food, I will get stronger. Snapshot from her life. It's July 4th. My boyfriend has asked me what I want to do since neither of us has to work. When I tell him I really want to go to the beach... He mentions that it might be crowded. Fearing that he won't have a good time and that it will be my fault, I tell him I need a minute to think. Thinking for a minute turns into me sitting on our bed, staring at the wall, until the sun goes down and the entire day has been wasted because I can't make a decision. I cry and ask my boyfriend to leave me alone when he checks in on me. I punish him for being kind and for loving me because I don't deserve it. I wonder what would happen if you, and I know this is hard for somebody who's, who's, you know, battles that kind of thing about not wanting to disappoint. What if you risked him not having a good time, you know, or, or got a, made a list of your fears that would happen if he didn't have a good time, kind of like, you know, I talked about in the episode that we just had with uh, Dr. Danziger. Okay, he doesn't have a good time, then what? Okay, so then what? Maybe he's, my fear is that what, he's silent to me on the car ride home? Okay, um, I think you get it. Anne shares about her depression, like you're swimming in a pool and someone puts the cover over it while you're in it. That's a good one about skin picking, like I could potentially rip my own face off if I don't get a good, quote, pick. And when I do, I get a half-second feeling of both sexual and hunger satisfaction, like I had a huge orgasm and ate an amazing meal all at the same time. Thank you for that. That that um, that kind of helped, helped me understand that a little more. Because I never, I've always had trouble 
figuring out, understanding what the payoff is for, for that. This is a happy moment from Lavender Love, and she writes, A few years out of college, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. After the diagnosis, I saw a variety of psychiatrists and counselors and tried many medication cocktails. I wanted to get better desperately, but the disease spiraled out of control again and again, leaving in its wake a suicide attempt, a hospitalization, ruined relationships, and many jobs that I couldn't hold on to. Little by little, though, I found things that worked for me the right medications, the therapist that clicked with me, an exercise regimen, certain cognitive behavioral therapy books. Fast forward to last week. I'm sitting across from my manager for my annual evaluation. To my surprise, I received a very good rating, and at the end of the evaluation, my manager says that she is so happy that I've been with the company for 10 years because I am the voice of reason in the office. She thanks me for all the times I stay calm while my co-workers get worked up over office drama. She thanks me for giving my co-workers sage advice on how to mend office relationships and how to stay calm when they feel angry and frustrated. I wanted to laugh out loud at the irony of the situation. This woman is calling me a bipolar person, the voice of reason. How awesome is that? If she only had known me 15 years ago, in that moment, I realized that my long journey of recovery has finally led me to a place of mental health. In that moment, I am rich. I can't even tell you how beautiful that is. I refuse. I refuse to tell you how beautiful that is. And if you push me on it, I will cast you to hell. And believe me, there are a lot of listeners I've cast to hell. This is from Mollusks Deserve Love Too. And she writes um, a snapshot of depression, anxiety, and uh, alcoholism and drug addiction. Today I cleaned my room. Well, not actually clean per se, but the utter chaos has been organized into slightly less chaotic piles. And I cleaned out all the garbage and dishes that have piled up over the course of my latest depressive episode. I have graduated from disgusting excuse for a human to a laundry-hating slob. Progress! Exclamation point. Yeah, man. It is all about the progress. Um, Nito uh, shares about his anxiety. Can't even think about some of my friends because I'm afraid they're judging me. Oh, God, that is the worst feeling in your stomach when when somebody's name comes up that you did something embarrassing in front of or said something stupid. Oh, oh. Captain Bullshit shares a happy moment. I just received my grade on a recent assignment for one of my university classes. I wasn't surprised to find out that I did a thoroughly shitty job. I usually get A's and B's on my assignments, but I haven't been up to my usual standards lately because of a combination of things including intense feelings of inadequacy, anxiety, and spending Christmas with my family and drinking too much. Fortunately, my professor is an absolute angel. At the end of the page, after a number of other comments and critiques of my paper, he asked me if I was okay encouraged me to let him know if anything was going on and offered me a chance to redo the paper with no penalties attached. He didn't want me to be stuck with a shitty grade. At the end of his notes, he said, 
When you're firing on all cylinders, you're clearly an A student. Let's get you back there. I would have started crying after reading that if it weren't if there weren't other people in the room with me at the time. I was overwhelmed by my professor's kindness and understanding. Reading his message brought me an indescribable sense of relief. My professor noticed my pain when the rest of the world seemed to be turning a blind eye. It's been a long time since I felt valued and cared for, and my professor, a brilliant, incredible human being, helped me to feel like I mattered. Some really, really awesome surveys this round of of people understanding us and wanting to help us. And um, maybe something, maybe something is um, maybe our society is changing for the better. Let's, let, Paul, let's base that on five surveys that you got in the span of a week. The important thing is that I ended the podcast by beating myself up. Can we just focus on that? Um, I, this is our last podcast of the year, and I just want to, from the bottom of my cobwebbed heart, thank all of you for your input your surveys, your support, your emails, your honesty. It, um, you're making my dream come true, being able to do this for, for a living. And um, I just feel really, really grateful. And to anybody who's out there struggling right now, and just beating yourself up or feeling alone, um, I just want to say that you you are seen, you are heard, you are valid, your pain is valid, and you you will eventually find your people if you're seeking them out. The universe has a funny way of meeting us halfway when you seek out good for yourself and others, and you will be okay. You'll have ups and downs, but none of them will define you because you are already perfectly lovable exactly as you are. You are not your trauma, and you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.